Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one in the coast guard we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Welcome to episode 171 with my guest, Tom Kramer. This episode is sponsored by PillPack. It's the pharmacy that delivers convenient pre-sorted meds right to your door. You want to have to deal with pulling your hair out at your local pharmacy, waiting in line, trying to get it refilled. These people take all the stress out of it. They'll ship it right to your door. And uh, you can support the podcast just by checking out their website, pillpack.com slash happy hour might be the first pharmacy you actually enjoy using and you get the first month free so visit pillpack.com slash happy hour i'm paul gilmartin this is the mental illness happy hour two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking the show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check it out. You can fill out surveys. You can see how other people filled out surveys. You can join the forum. You can support the show. You can can actually bring up the website and put your thumb in your ass and just sit there for, uh, for two solid hours and not listen to the podcast. That's always your choice. This is a democracy that we live in. Oh, I forgot some of you live outside of uh, the United States. I don't know. You're going to have to. You're going to have to go by the whatever the local rules dictate. I don't want you to get in any kind of uh, any kind of trouble. Well, my wife just shut the door on me. She doesn't like me talking about my my thumb in my ass. Oh, actually, she does. She doesn't like me talking about your thumbs in your asses. I. But can I just tell you how uncomfortable I am with the way this show is unfolding so far? I am not going to hit delete. I'm going to keep plowing forward. All right. Um, going to read some surveys. You know I love me some struggle in a sentence surveys. And uh, this one was filled out by a woman who calls herself Panda Bear. 
She's in her 20s about her anxiety. I want to pound my head against this table I'm sitting at and scream and cry about her PTSD. How can I help anyone else if I can't even help myself? Uh, Poppy, who is, uh, she's a teenager, about her OCD. I have to do this. About her PTSD. Not in this world. About her anorexia. Makes me feel weak. Kill me, please. From Runaway Mom, who's in her 30s, about her depression, feels like a flower that had the sun turn its back on it and is closing itself off, uh, closing itself to the world as though the world doesn't exist. Um, about her recovery. Oh, nice that somebody added struggle in a, in a sense. I guess it wouldn't be a struggle, although I guess recovery can be a struggle. Anyway, uh, recovery feels like the flower that opens, uh, turned its face to the warm sun, and notices that there is a world and it is beautiful. Man, that is such a great description of recovery. Sometimes when I'm when I'm in a meeting, I will close my eyes and I'll lean my head back and and I find myself turning my face like towards the ceiling, like I can feel there is like a, a sun that is warming my face. So I, that, that one really, really resonated with me. Um, a highlight from one of her issues, uh, and uh, I, I think it's her anxiety and her OCD, she writes, the time I was asked to host someone at my house for a weekend, I couldn't say yes because it caused me so much anxiety, but when I tried to say no, I felt so miserable to not be able to. The combination quickly spiraled into strong feelings of worthlessness that I had a terrible urge to hang myself. That is intense. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, same survey filled out by Lauren. Um, hey guys, why don't you step up and fill some of these out? Uh, the, the women seem to be, uh, the ones that maybe women are more innately talented at describing their inner lives than men. But, um, Lauren about her depression writes a weighted blanket covering me in sleep and void of feelings and desires, but her anxiety feeling like I'm slowly being shrink wrapped, losing my breath and the ability to move. Uh, about sexual bias. I'm a second-class citizen who's being overruled by egocentric dicks who can't complete basic math. And about her anger issues. Afraid they will get worse when I have children and will become my abusive father and continue the cycle. Uh, Jelly Blue. She's in her 20s. About her anorexia. I'm still not skinny enough to be anorexic. Um snapshot that highlights her struggle every time i think about seeking help about my struggles with food issues obsessing about what i eat and how disgusted i constantly feel about my body i realize i would be the fattest person at the support group and decide it's a bad idea you know my thought as i read that was that's like an alcoholic saying um they're not going to accept me at uh, at the support group until i've killed someone in a head-on collision you know why wait for that why wait for that Eleanor Rigby, she's a teenager, about her anxiety. I feel I fear being trapped in my anxiety, but I also fear not being myself if I take medication for my anxiety. Wow, that's deep. Um, Sam, she's in her 20s, about her depression. Unmotivated, lazy, insane, alone, overwhelmed, empty. Oh my God, did that one hit me like a fucking laser between the eyes. What a great way to sum it up. About her bulimia pressure um imperfect but beautiful in her 20s about her depression go away i'm lonely about her anxiety if i stop moving and doing constantly 
I will be enveloped by all my fears and fail. Uh, Jennifer, uh, she's a teenager about her depression. Depression is like glue keeping me in bed until I get the strength to break the bond. Anxiety, let it go from frozen is all lies. Uh, snapshot moment from her anxiety, sitting in class, taking an exam, and my hands are shaking, my heart is racing, and I have to snap out of it somehow. Thank you for that. Hey, we got a guy here, David, about, uh, he actually has a bunch of issues, but the thing I wanted to read of his, and he had a father who was abusive, um, the snapshot from his life is what I wanted to read. Living in a Honda in a Walmart parking lot, it's cheaper than paying rent. And the realization that the scariest thing out here is me. Oh, God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's, that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got into therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I I uh, I just wanted to say something before I roll this interview with uh, with Tom Kramer. We had recorded uh, the interview, and as I was packing my stuff up, he said, "You know, I have a question for you." And so I did. After we talked for another five minutes, and we weren't recording, I said, "You know, what? let's talk about this again, and let's record this." And I felt like what we talked about should really go in the beginning of the interview. So. I've moved that. That's going to be the first thing you're going to hear. And I think you'll probably hear the rest of his episode in a different light than you would if it was at the end. So uh, Tom and I had actually just finished recording. And uh, as I was packing up, um, what did you what did you say to me? You said there there's another thing that maybe I we... said, you mind if I ask you a question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then what did you say? Well, it was it was a story that I I didn't get into uh, when I was in grade school, and I said I got a job after school and on weekends, and I was selling newspaper subscriptions, which which we had talked about, but not this particular story about it. Yeah, and um, uh, and it was with a lot of I was the youngest. I was like twelve, and the other kids were teenagers from a tough families inner city and uh the the crew manager they called him he was this guy kind of a charles bronson tough guy from nashville one week uh the newspaper went on strike so we couldn't sell in st louis he said let's go sell out of town papers and he took us to nashville where he was from he said i'm gonna get you boys some pussy and uh he took us out one night. Now, I remember, like, I'm 12. I, I hadn't gone through puberty. I am scared out of my mind, but I'm just going along for the ride with all these older guys I'm trying to fit in with. 
And there are of various age ranges. Uh, yeah, they're they, some they're teenagers. like from. I think there was one about my age, and they went up to like nineteen. Okay. And um, so he he took us, and we were like crammed into the station wagon. We used to drive around in, and he pulls up to off the street, gets a a young girl, a streetwalker, and says, "You're going to do all these boys." And he gets a hotel room. We go to this hotel room. And one by one. He, and how old is she? She, I don't know her age, but I'm thinking the whole time she is young. She is very She's young. She's under 18. Oh, yes. Under 18. Okay. Easily. And um, one by one, he brings us into the hotel room and then keeps everybody in there. And this girl does her thing with, with guys, either blowjob or intercourse whatever so the people are watch people that have had sex with her already are then in the room Stay. watching somebody else so if you haven't had sex with her you're not watching yet right you have to have sex with her and then you yes okay and i guess so, that's yeah i didn't think about it at the time i guess that's how it worked the last two were was me and this kid who was a, a little older than me, but he was also from a Catholic, I remember, school in St. Louis. And we were both scared out of our minds. And uh, so I'm like the last one. And I go into this room full of guys and the crew manager. And it was, I was numb. And I started cracking jokes. I started to try to sell her a newspaper subscription as uh, my defense. Um, I froze, and uh, everyone was making fun of me. I couldn't perform. I, di I didn't know what was expected of me. And, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, uh, it shut me down uh, for a long time of just being afraid of people, even more so than I was already. You know, I, I joined this group, this job, to find a family, really, because at my grade school was I was bullied. It was be, it was it was a horrible situation, going to school. So I joined, um, yeah, this group as my uh, support group, kind of. And I couldn't live up to them. That's how I felt. And years late years later, um, in thinking about it, I kept thinking about this girl. Now maybe this is the Catholic guilt. I don't know, but I kept thinking how young she was. And then not only did, did I hate myself for being a part of it, but why didn't I stop this? And, um, yeah, 12. Yeah, we, we, um, we, when we talked about this um, five minutes ago, I, I said, you were a child, and she was a child. You were both abused. You were both abused. And anybody else that was under 18 or felt pressured into doing that by this guy... This guy did that for his jollies, and you said, you know, but he wasn't masturbating. I said, oh, trust me, this guy went back to the hotel room and, and masturbated. I mean, this is so carefully orchestrated, because if you notice, he he kept it from anybody being in the room that would have gotten up and left and reported him. They were blackmailed because they all had had sex first. So... To be in the room to watch these underage kids do it, they had already had sex 
with this woman. It was like a stroke of sick genius on this guy's part to orchestrate this all for his pleasure. This was not about giving you guys pleasure. This was about him getting off on on abuse. And I never thought about it that way. I thought about my own shame, but... uh it's also something I didn't talk to talk to anyone about f- for years and decades until I was in treatment. Um, and it was it hit me very hard. But but still, it really wasn't until talking to you about it today, realizing what it what it really was. It, it is abuse of the highest order, Tom. He humiliated you in front of all these people. He put you yeah. in a in a spot. He abused his authority. You know, he fooled you into thinking it was something different. It's classic, classic perpetrator. You know, perpetrators are so good at hiding their tracks so they can continue to get away with with what they get away with. And I can't imagine the shame. You know, when I was that age, I wouldn't even shower in front of my peers because I was so ashamed of my body because they were in puberty and I wasn't. And it would fill me with taking my clothes off in the locker room. Yeah. It would fill me with the shame that I could feel go through my entire body. And the thought of me being in a room where I couldn't get it up and I'm being mocked is, it, it, it must have been an out-of-body experience for you. Yeah. That is so clearly serious serious trauma in, in in my opinion and um i can't imagine you know one of the things i i asked you afterwards was this had to have affected your sexuality your your feeling of um sometimes feeling overwhelmed or panicked or oh yeah shut, e- shut down sexually easily very uh shut down overwhelmed inadequate um and uh it was very hard I didn't have sex, which, although as a Catholic, you know, it's really probably proper. I didn't have sex till I was uh, 21, um, and I had plenty of opportunities, um, but I was too ashamed. Was it, a gen- was it a general anxiety about who you are as a person, your body, what's going to happen? Oh, yeah, that I wouldn't be good. You would m- laugh at me. Almost like the same feelings that I had as a kid. I can't imagine how devastating that that must have been. Because especially at that age, you're you're you so want to be a man. Yeah. And this motherfucker put you in that and that girl in that position. Um, and I'm sure he was abused, but oh man. Dude, my, my, my heart goes out to you. That's, that's well, some serious shit. Um, I had something to work on. And uh, thanks for... I, I don't know. For some reason, I thought afterwards that you might have some good, <laughs> some good feedback on this. And it might be more important than something that I'm, I'm always minim, minimalizing. Yeah. You know? I did it for years. The, the, the listeners that listen regularly. And I yeah. shared with Tom while we were off mic about the covert sexual abuse I, I experienced and how I blamed myself for years and I and I wouldn't give it weight and uh, and I encourage you to explore this more yeah. with, with your with your therapist and um, have you shared any of this with your wife? Mm. Not enough. Yeah. 
I'd, I'd encourage that too. Or you know what? Take your therapist's lead uh, yeah. on it. I'd, I'm not a therapist, but I know that opening up to people that are safe has been really, really healing um, for me because the, the ripples of sexual trauma um, are so varied and complex and um, camouflaged. Uh, I'm still finding out the ways in, in which it, it, it affects me. Um, so be patient with yourself and be kind to yourself and don't have any preconceived notions about how you're supposed to proceed or heal and and don't blame yourself or your body when when feelings um come up that that i would say to any person who's experienced sexual abuse is just be kind to yourself with the process cuz it's a confusing yeah roller coaster yeah but thank you so much for for sharing that um i i, I really appreciate it well saying to you for let me share it yeah and for sharing yours i mean yeah it's a i'm glad i came yeah me too Thanks, buddy. I'm here with Tom Kramer, who is a writer, director. Um, I've never met you before. You worked with a friend of mine, uh, Russ Arch, great guy. Yes, he is. He said, you have to talk to this guy because he's got some interesting stories. Uh, he's battled addiction. Um, he's had some real ups and downs in his life. And uh, so we, we exchanged some emails. And here we are. It's good to, it's good to meet you, Tom. It's Good to meet you too, and thanks for having me. And and like I just said a few moments ago, this podcast you do is a great service. It's an incredible thing. So I'm honored to be here. Well, I appreciate that. We got nowhere to go but downhill right now. Uh, Should we just bail? Should we just get out of it? Cut our losses? That's fine with me. It's it's your show. I'm here for whatever you want. It was very nice to meet you, Tom. Nice to meet you too. Thanks. And tell, be- tell Russ thanks, too. <laughs> I'm so tempted. It was easier than I thought. I'm so tempted to stop right here and post this as an That's episode. That's fine. I am so fucking tempted to do, do that. Do it, please. Oh, my God. Uh, you Are you originally from St. Louis? Or is that where yes, you moved to LA I am from, from St. Louis. Okay. I watched that little clip you sent to me of you being interviewed by Larry King. Oh, okay. Yes, I was born and raised in St. Louis. Yeah. And... Um, I lived there my first, uh, well, until t- I went to college in okay. New Orleans. Okay. So, which which college did you go to? Loyola. Okay. Loyola Nolens. What did you? I uh, love New Orleans. Oh my god. Me too. Been <laughs> for an we alcoholic to, addict. Uh, I can't imagine. We used to have film class in the pub sometimes. <sighs> it was wonderful, and I, I remember going into some classes sober and coming out throwing up. Yes. And my uh, film teacher, I took film and TV there, he was, uh, he drank in class, uh-huh. and he became a great friend and actually wrote with me on a, sh- on a show years later, but uh, it was a great experience, yes. Uh, what, would you, just to let our listeners know if they're going, writer, director, where, where, where do I know him from, the... the most well-known stuff that you've directed, would you say Curb Your Enthusiasm? Um, the, that's probably the most well-known in recent memory. A lot of my... I started very young, so a lot of my stuff was like on a show called Fridays in the early 80s. Which was a, a, it was a competitor it was a, to uh, Saturday, Saturday Night Live. Yes. It, it was starred the, Michael Richards and... Larry David and... That, and um, 
Um, Larry Charles was one of the writers. So, uh-huh. yeah, it was a ABC West Coast version of Saturday Night Live. Then I did Not Necessarily the News. Oh, I remember that. And then I did... I did a lot of... I was very fortunate with a lot of iconic shows. Candid Camera. Mm-hmm. I was head writer on the 1990... Uh, early 90s version. Yeah, you'd have been really old to have been the head writer on the 1960s yes. version. But but I did get to... Uh, part of my job, it was the last Candid Camera that Alan Funt was involved with. Mm-hmm. But they didn't allow him on the set. Because he was a dick? Or, or in what? the office. Well, that's what... The, the rumors were that was part of their deal with them. Part of my job to keep them involved in the show is I would have dinner with them every Thursday night. So I I got to love them. It's like a great storyteller and soaked up all, and it wasn't a confrontational situation. So I liked them. Oh, nice. So that was cool. Yeah. So you were raised in in St. Louis. What was uh, what was home life like growing up? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think I had a, I was very fortunate. I had great parents. It was Irish Catholic. My dad was a dry cleaner. My mom worked, uh, in that business. We had, there was five kids. Um, it was, I worked at the laundromat as a kid. Really, it was a, f- uh, a wonderful family, I think. Was there um, alcoholism? And yes. Well, in my we, we all drank heavily mm-hmm. growing up, um, which we it, I thought was very normal. We would sometimes go for family drives later on. I remember this, and everybody, including whoever was driving, would fill up a sixteen ounce tumbler of beer or a cocktail or a martini, whatever, and we'd all go out for a family <laughs> drive. And I thought every family did that. The adults did that, right? And the kids. The kids would, in the back seat... Not with alcohol. Have a drink. Oh, absolutely, yes. What? I'm not talking six years old. I'm talking, you know, when we were in our teenage years. Like, I mean, because to me, there's a difference between 14 and 18, given your kids... 16. Was, yeah. I think well, 16, I started drinking regularly. In front of your parents? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, let's see. By the way, which does not, in my opinion, have any influence on somebody being an alcoholic? In my opinion. Right. No, it, not necessarily. Yeah. Um, it, may my, get the, it may get them there faster. Right. Not all of my brothers and sisters became alcoholics. So, I, it, a lot of the stories that I have or my memories doesn't aren't the reason of my self-destruction. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, let's see. We I I guess the one uh, memory that I that that I think had much of first effect on me was we moved uh, to a different school. I went to a very strict Catholic wear uniforms school, uh, and then we moved to a different neighborhood, and I got transferred to a very more liberal Catholic school. And for three years, I was beat up, bullied made fun of i was like the outcast and i think that had a lot of lasting effect on me i that was when i got into magic i was a magician for a Mm -hmm. very brief period writing making films and kind of into my own world um what did you feel when you when you would get into into magic let's say you would you would see a trick that you wanted to what what would the rush be? Walk me through the arc. It of- was well. Um, I wasn't a very good magician. I used to make my own tricks, and I, my biggest thing was like at the Blue and Gold Boy Scout uh, 
banquet and I built this trick where I got my younger brother into this wooden box and I put spears through him and then he, I made him disappear. And it was, you know, you could do something that other people can't. Yeah. So it was a little power, I guess. Yeah. You know, it was a make-believe world and that's what I liked about making films and stuff. Would you get a certain high from that magic when the, when I, the trick would work and people would be blown away? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't good enough to continue. I went to magic school. You killed your brother, which which was <laughs> the sign uh, that you needed to get. He better. would never do another. Tr- yeah, <laughs> he would never do another trick with me. But he's doing great. <laughs> yeah, he survived. He had a good life. Uh, so you're doing the magic. What are What are some of the other ways you're coping with feeling uh, like an outcast? You know, I got a I got a job after school. Um, working, selling newspaper subscriptions door to door. That became like my new family. Mm-hmm. We would work, I would work, I was working like 25 hours a week in grade school, mm-hmm. after school and on Saturdays. And uh, they were they were a much rougher group than I was and my family was. I was, I was from a middle class, kind of a nice, quiet family, I think. And these were inner city, broken home kids. And yeah, St. Louis has a tough inner city. Yeah. And but e- the, in East St. Louis, Illinois, East, East is really Louis. tough. Are you? Do you know? I mean, have you been there? I've, I'm from Chicago, and I oh. uh, performed a bunch of times in uh, in St. Louis. East St. Louis, there's uh, myths about East St. Louis, uh, but but I think a lot of them are true. I think for a while, East St. Louis is the only city where it's legal to go through a red light. Wow! Because too many people were getting shot at stuff. Shot waiting for the light to turn green. A lot of stories about people going across the river and getting off at the wrong exit, and you never hear from them again. Yeah. Well, when I was a stand-up comedian working in St. Louis decades ago, it would be you would finish your show, and then the herd of guys and staff or whatever from the club would go to the strip clubs across the river in East St. Louis. Yes. I knew someone who worked at uh, one of those strip clubs. Yeah. Yes. He became a big guy. When I first... Uh, went to my very first rehab. The door opened, and that was him. He was the counselor. Really? Yes. I went to grade school with him. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, continuing along, you, um, you're selling papers? Selling papers, and uh, that kind of got me through grade school. I went to a Jesuit all boys high school, very strict academically, very high achieving high school, and I had I was fine actually. Um, made some friends. I went to Loyola University, New Orleans, to mm-hmm. go to film and TV school. And my freshman year, I got hired to be a runner on it. They were doing a Dick Clark, Captain and Tennille special, <laughs> and that was my man. I was so excited. Um, I kept the cue cards. I got to do cue cards one time because we were shooting on a riverboat, and the cue card guy missed the boat. And I kept those cue cards for years. I think this is the greatest thing. I wanted to be in show business so bad that I was. it was the most exciting thing. Then the following year, one of the students they hired was going to be a production coordinator on Dick Clark's show. He was doing a, a variety show in NBC, and he hired me to be a runner on the show out in Hollywood. So I left college my sophomore year, came out to Hollywood and was a runner. And then then they hired, I was given them ideas, they made me a researcher, and it was live TV, it was, it was really like I was in heaven. 
making wow. no money. My take-home pay was $360 a month. And my rent was 240 which ain't bad, but, you know, I <laughs> it was tough. broke. But it, I, was, I was in heaven. And uh, um, I went back to school. The show was canceled. I went back to school. I made a film uh, that I told people it was going to be for Saturday Night Live. I was a big Saturday Night Live fan. It was a comedy, parody, documentary thing. And I and then uh, what would have been my uh, second semester of my sophomore year, I dropped out of school again on my own for some reason, drove back out to Hollywood with a copy of this film and gave it to the producers. The same producers who did the Dick Clark show were doing the Emmy Awards. And I got... I went to the Emmy Awards. Where, I got a, where, where, it was Billy and John Moffat. Oh, I know John Moffat. Yeah, you I do? worked with him. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. And Pat Lee. Yes, yeah, yes. Love they John did and not Pat. necessarily the news. And I, I actually did not necessarily the elections uh, with them one time, which was a live. Dennis Miller hosted it, and we did live. Yes. Live pieces, live on TV, and I've never had such bad diarrhea That's in my life. Funny, I must have just missed you because I did like the first season, the pilot, the first season, and then I. I had some problems, personal problems, <laughs> and I came back. But I came back and did like the very end, the very last, a bunch of specials they did, okay. and I think one, yeah, a couple with Dennis Miller. Yeah. So I must have just missed you must somewhere. Must have just missed you. It was with uh, much of the cast was the people from uh, Mr. Show. Is that? They, they um, were, yeah, David Cross. Uh, it was and David Cross Odenkirk. and and. Um, they weren't in it as much as as the other guys, Paul F. Tompkins and Tom Kenny and Tom, uh, that's some of the other. Familiar. Some of was the Annabelle. Other guys. No, Annabelle had left. Uh, not necessarily the, the the news. So this would have been uh, ninety six uh, when I when I did. Oh, ninety six. Yeah. But I don't want to get. I don't, don't want to get. No, no, okay, okay. I don't no, want to get right. bogged down in show busy stuff. I want to. <laughs> I want to talk about the emotional well, turmoil yeah. and all of uh, this. Well, the, I think. Uh, well, the show business was my. Uh, affected my I was too young what what happened is that um, so I gave this film and they were putting together a show called Fridays it was a live late night show they hired me as just ba based on that film yes that, that you that you shot that's yes. great and so you did they want you to direct the entire show or just no, direct no, no. short films and no, have at, those put, at, fir put at first they they wanted me to be f the filmmaker they put the film on the pilot and they said you're going to you're going to be the filmmaker that was my game. Like the Albert Brooks, what he yes, was to Albert Saturday Night Brooks, Yes. And um, I was 20, and I was in heaven. How could you not be? I was it's... in heaven, right? I, was, I couldn't even old enough to drink, Every and I was making film. film student's dream come yeah, true. Yeah. Um, Jack Burns, who was the supervising producer, he, was, he became like my father figure. Him and John Moff, they all stay, and Bill Lee, they all uh, Great guy, Jack supported Burns. me. I know Jack. Yeah, and he's got an interesting story, too. Yes, yes, yes I still... Former partner of George Carlin. Yes, a lot of people yeah. don't know that. And I just had lunch with him, actually, a couple of weeks ago. I still see him Sweet once a man. month. He's a great and influence funny. And funny. in my life. Yeah. Hilarious. So he, they were going to hire other writers. And he said, you got to put Tom Kramer on the writing staff before you hire another writer. And then they started to have me direct anything on the show that was on location. So they put me in the DGA. So, which is a huge 
accomplishment, especially for somebody in there, somebody younger than 25 to get in the DGA yeah. for, I'm, I'm saying this for the, for the listeners out there that, that aren't in show business. It's the Directors Guild of America. And it is a union that is really hard to get into. But once you're in it, um, the money you make and the opportunities, if it, correct me if I'm wrong, are, it's much greater. It, well, it certainly was back then. There's not as many DGA shows in, in, in the world of cable that I, yes. <laughs> that I work in. But um, it still happens. And yes, no, it's great. It was, I, they, John Moffat said I was the youngest member of the DGA. So um, it, was a, it was a big honor. And I, 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 knew it was, I knew how rare this situation was. And I worked my ass off to make the best film I could every week. And, and look, I was directing Billy Crystal and whoever, William Shatner, whoever was hosting. George Carlin was, uh, when he f was the first celebrity host, I, I uh, directed and wrote a film for him. Um, I used to have to leave, like at the end of the show on Friday nights after it was a, a live show. I had the best of both worlds because I would make a a film that week then I get to see it played live in front of a live audience with none of the stress of directing live yeah right I could party and um, I would leave the, the studio and, the, and where everyone was gathered and I would go and cry I would, have to, I would go alone and cry I, I was I knew how lucky I was that's so beautiful um, and I fucked it up I fucked it up. I mean, I didn't fuck it up during that show so much, but in my life, um, it was during Fridays where I drank as a as a Kramer. Is <laughs> want is want to, but um, I didn't lose. I did. I wasn't out of control until uh, it was a very. It, this was before John Belushi died, and it was a big cocaine culture, and I. All of my idols on the show were doing cocaine. Not everyone on the show was doing cocaine. The people I was hanging out with, the writers who were all 10 years older than me, were doing lots of cocaine, selling it. It was everywhere. Um, and I was offered it over and over and over again until one time I was drunk after a, a show party, a rap party. And they said, this will help you get home. And I took a little cocaine... And it and it did. It woke me up just a little. I didn't feel big effect, but that was the end. That was the beginning of the end. And you didn't know. And it. then I started to just do a little bit of it, experiment with it. Thought it was helping me write, and I and I was out of control. I remember years later, a news report about Santa Anita Racetrack, and they had they test the first three horses on for drugs after each race, right? And so the second place finisher tested positive for cocaine. And they, the veterinarian said, cocaine will not help a horse run faster, but the horse will think he's running faster. <laughs> and that was true for me. I thought I was writing better, and it was, it was just you're writing more. It, I, I, I can't agree enough. I've never seen anybody's creativity enhanced by um, cocaine or crack. No. Uh, Maybe coffee. Boy, why is it that, that coffee well, to, will help you, but, but cocaine <laughs> won't? Uh, maybe it's... I, I don't know. I don't know if coffee's helped me, so I can't really... Yeah. <laughs> although I drink coffee every morning, but um, cocaine... Uh, now, they all smoke pot. I didn't... I wasn't really into that. 
Um, there was writers who only drank. There were some who didn't do anything. So it wasn't like everybody did it. I want to paint that picture. But I was very young. I did it. I got into it. I could not stop. Tell me, how, it, how, how did it progress? Well, I started hiding some i had them even some of my my friends who were writers on the show who did it i would have them hide my drugs so i didn't have full access to it oh wow that's that's did you know there was a problem then when you had oh absolutely i knew i would i would write things down i'd had all these plans in my head to stop i remember because i was spending so much on i was spending my paycheck on it so i would buy a large amount and i opened up a safe deposit box at the bank so that i could only take out what so much per day but every morning I was waiting outside the bank for that bank to open at 8 a.m. So I could get into my safety deposit box. It, it was I, There was a, a, a guest we had on the show, um, a friend of mine, Tom. Uh, the episode is called Lawyer Tom. And uh, he, was a, he tried crack one weekend. By the time the weekend was over, he was hooked. And he was supposed to show up for court on Monday, and he showed up missing a shoe, his tie all askew, and he said, I was the only lawyer that showed up to defend somebody and left in handcuffs. <laughs> and his his crack addiction just went downhill, and he thought the solution was to have somebody, he paid somebody to create a safe that would only open at a certain time. And then he and his buddy would be at, you know, two hours before the safe would be timed to open. They'd be there with a blowtorch trying to trying to get it open. It, it, the weird thing is I can relate to that. I understand. <laughs> talk, about, talk about the feeling in your body, in your mind, when you don't have that and you want it. it it's... I considered it it was like the worst most if the devil could come up with the drug because really the biggest feeling it gave me is that i wanted more more than happiness or anything at first you think i get a little more alert whatever but then you just but you want more you got to have more and so you want more of that alert euphoric well it it also um uh i i never considered i i was i always felt like i was on the outside looking in like i was not cool i was not hip this was a very hip rock and roll show and i had i was on i was because of my job i could pretend like i was in the with the hip cool crowd hanging out with the rock stars or the celeb whatever and it was like this this fake image that wasn't me and cocaine helped me pretend who was who was the real you i'm just a i'm just a scared bullied kid you know who's just trying to be okay um, and I'm still scared of people. I think the bullying thing really still affects me to this day. Do you are are um, you feeling any fear right now? A little. Talk, oh, absolutely. About coming this, coming in, coming, leading up to talking about this was very fearful for me. But that's kind of how I deal with it. Is I just kind of do it. What What are the are there specific fears, or is it just a generalized anxiety? Um, if I was to really think, I think I'm gonna. People are gonna. F- find out i'm not as good as them like i don't know i don't get the joke someone told me that actually you look like you remind me of someone who doesn't get the joke and that that really hit it on on the what did that that feel like when they said that did that feel like oh they're so right they know me i've been discovered they know me yeah you know it's weird i live in this i live very uh uh my wife and i live in this apartment building it's very 
old, but we have parking mm-hmm. in a parking garage. And to this day, when I pull in the parking garage, if there's another resident pulling in at the same time, I will wait until they go in before I get out because I don't want to be engaged in a conversation with them because I will come across bad. <laughs> it's, not so, you, it's, not so, you, it's not that you're afraid of being bored by them. It's that oh, you're no, afraid not, of them. No, no, it's about them being bored by me or them be looking down on me. Oh or it, So you can imagine my, my stress <laughs> just coming to talk to you. I feel like such an asshole <laughs> no. because just yesterday I avoided going into a coffee shop because there's a guy in there that bores me. And I oh, was really? like, so I went in a, another door so he didn't see me. This guy's a, he's a nice guy, but he's a windbag. And, and I hate to say that, but, but he is. No, no, no. That's that. And, I, I feel like a hypocrite now because actually there is a person in our building who we avoid. My wife and I both avoid him because he's like the nicest guy in the world, but he will go on and on and on and on. And I... You don't, but we don't and then owe I feel it to those guilty pe- about no, that. but we don't owe it to those people to be a captive audience for them. You know, if they're not picking up on the social cues that that hey, you know, I've I've got work here on my laptop and I'm, you know, I try to give this guy cues like, oh, that's great. Well, hey, no, you know, nice to see you. And then he'll just go on and on. Do and you on. ever feel like maybe? Well, like I feel sometimes maybe people aren't. I'm not picking up on their social cues. You don't strike me as that type of person at all. Uh, I know I don't know you very well, yeah. but you're not uh, those type of people. I think have kind of a more of a domineering approach hmm. to ah. a, a conversation that is um, doesn't have that natural give and give and take. You know, when people are really listening, there's less of that planning of here's all this stuff I have to get out to you. It t- seems to me that the people that dominate conversations are people that have like a dam of what they need to say built up behind them and you are the person that they can unleash it on. Um, and you don't strike me like that really? at, at, well, then, at all. Then I'm, then my next thought is, well, why can't I just be there to listen? Because, I, because I think some people are overwhelming and sometimes we just don't want to be around people. Sometimes I just don't want to be around people. There's times I can't wait for my wife to finish a sentence so I can go back to reading what I'm (laughs) reading or watching what I'm watching. And she's one of the funniest people I know. She's not somebody that, that, you know, quote unquote, runs her mouth a lot. She's she's not. She chooses her words pretty carefully. So sometimes I think we we just want to be alone. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're. A, uh, but you're a terrible person. But you should know that you're. A t- <laughs> I at ruminate. Your core, I, I, <laughs> I, at your core, I see you, and it's nothing but just dark black tar. It's not that bad. <laughs> I love too how you <laughs> fucking got to be a writer and a filmmaker on a national show at twenty, and you're a, doing satire, doing film yeah. satire, yeah. and you are convinced that you are the guy that doesn't get the joke. You you have literally had the stamp of approval of this guy. Well, I was told I was I because everyone was older than me. They all seemed to know about life and everything, and uh, I didn't get that. Also, even though a lot of these people did drugs and it, before I even knew what it was a lot of them didn't seem to have the same problems I did with it um, there is something wrong with me I see and uh, would I they make references and, and things that you didn't understand because you were hadn't lived as oh, many absolutely. years oh absolutely oh it was a so, very political so, show I see so yeah. that fed into oh the, yeah I'm they were much the, more world 
uh, worldly I'm, and smart. Yeah, I'm going to be discovered. You know, my yeah. my lack of knowledge yeah. is going to be. They discovered. also allowed my youth. They would make fun of when they would introduce my film. They would say, "Here's a film by our ten year old filmmaker Tom Kramer." Whatever they would, they would kind of have fun with how young I was, and and that also it was a good and a bad thing. I mean, it, it allowed me to grow. It allowed my mistakes and my rough filmmaking talent to grow. So and you had no idea a, that there was a, was a great a, gift. No idea that I'm sure there was a part of them that was like incredibly jealous Absolutely. that you had gotten your foot in the door. Absolutely, because also my films, I pretty much had full control of my films. Oh. There was very little comments or editing, which I wish there was. Looking back, but they pretty much said this is a this is his film. I remember Larry David fighting for my films when someone had a comment said, "No, this is a Tom Kramer film. This is Jesus his film." And I use that today when young filmmakers ask me to critique their film and stuff and said well if this is your film this is your it's poetry you know i can't if if it's a if it's an episode of a sitcom i've worked on or candy camera or whatever i can comment but really if this is your personal film you know i can say what's out of focus but that might have been on purpose (laughs) (laughs) So what's the next the next phase? The the cocaine starts. Well, get, getting yeah, it, it, uh, it was it was pretty bad. I did not necessarily the news, and I was trying everything I could. I had a, I had a business manager or, or a showbiz manager who was controlling my finances to try to help control me, and I did okay for a while. Um, and then they I got called in by John Moffat and Bill Lee, who basically said you need help, and. I didn't take the help. I went into a severe depression. I realized I, I, I had blown my career. I was like in my early 20s, and my life was over. And I ended up moving back to St. Louis, lived in my dad's basement. My mom had died while I was doing Fridays. And she was my one big supporter, and that was also very hard to take. Um. So I moved. I was living back in St. Louis. What, what was your, if I can just interrupt for a second? What was your relationship with your dad like? Um, well, I love my dad. He was very. He wasn't. He never taught me much growing up in terms of anything about money or finances or life or sex or relationships. He just and he kind of t- in his later years before he died, he t- he told me that. Um, he was very, but he was a nice guy. I loved him. He when I. Uh, told my mom and dad, I'm moving to Hollywood. I'm dropping out of college. I'm moving to Hollywood. <laughs> my mom was very supportive. Oh, my God. My dad said, took me out to dinner and said, they're going to screw you. And that was his <laughs> words of advice. Uh, which is, I guess, maybe true. He was smarter than I thought. You know, yeah. he's a great guy. But uh, he was a heavy drinker and he was just a great guy, but Okay, I'm just trying to get not like a, a strict disciplinarian. Or I'm anything. just trying to get a sense of like emotionally what your connection was like to your to your family. It sounds like there just wasn't a lot of language of the no, heart being yeah, spoken. I, probably not. Feelings weren't Pro- really probably not no. really discussed. No. Okay. No. So you you move back. You're living in your basement. Your your mom has passed away, and um, what's the emotional? Oh, it was the darkest, darkest period. You personally or the surroundings? My me period and in my surroundings i lived alone in a basement my dad would go to work every day and i would i started to write a screenplay or something to keep it i had no friends anymore in st louis no job i had destroyed my wonderful opportunity in hollywood which i was as aware of how wonderful it was at the time i was also aware of how what i did to it 
and I my life consisted for months of just drinking, pretending to write, passing out, coming to, passing out, coming to, over and over again. I would try to come to enough because when my dad got home from work, he would start drinking. Then I could drink with him a little bit. We'd go to dinner. And then I would drink till I passed out and come to in the middle of the night. One and uh, one night, I uh, I think the darkness just overcame me. How dark uh, I felt! Like there was, you know, there's no. It's not going to get better. There is no light at the end of this tunnel. And battling an addiction in your parents' basement, passing out and coming to, and depressed. I mean, alone. The the as alone as I'll ever remember being in my in my life, with no one to talk to, and uh, so one morning, I was like two three a.m. I can't anyway. When I had come to, I I said I'm going to end this, and I put I typed up some type of note in the typewriter that I just can't play these games anymore. And uh, I don't even know what that was referring to specifically, but I think life was all like a game of how good you're doing and what people think of you and how cool you are or whatever. And I had no life. And so I put a note in the typewriter and I had an old judo belt down in the basement. I tied one end to my neck and one end to the rafter and I got on a box in the basement and I jumped and uh, all I can remember is that my feet hit the floor and I was <laughs> and I felt like I fucked this up also and so I just did you went, laugh at all or? I, I kind of somehow there was, must have been a little laugh inside of me because I mean because this the is like, inside of any comedian yeah, has got to go no, that, like, that's kind of funny I was like yeah it was like this is so I went limp I thought okay I'll just go limp and a judo belt isn't really a hard... It's kind of stretches a little. Mm-hmm. So I went limp, and I'm hanging there, and I realize I'm, like, ready to die. I'm dying, right? I'm half drunk, and, and after a while, you know, I'm just getting more sober. This is not <laughs> killing me. I'm just getting bad, I'm just getting bad <laughs> sleep at this yeah, point. Yeah, this, this is going to hurt in the morning when I wake up. It's just a bad pillow. So I was... T- I, f- I took it off, and I, and I went and... Uh, passed out i told my dad actually the next morning he wanted me to go do uh something with the dry cleaners and i said i can't i can't and i was pacing i i didn't tell him what i tried to do but somehow he must have known well i don't know how he couldn't have known something was wrong with me and he had already said go here to this hospital and he called a cab and i was dropped off at this hospital said see this person and i went in and i was met by this doctor and I told him I'd put a rope around my neck. And he says, I'm going to admit you. And I called my sister and said, because I just remembered the suicide note. And I didn't want anyone to know. Oh. So I called her and said, Laura, please take this. There's Go down into the basement in the typewriter. It's a piece of paper. I want you to take it out of there, rip it up, throw it away. Do not read it. And... uh she said, okay, what's wrong? I said, just please do this for me. And uh, they put me into, I was in a locked psych ward for a month. But what they said was, 
they're not my, my depression or whatever. It's a like you're an alcoholic, an addict. And so that was the very first time that anyone uh, had told me that or what, I didn't even know what that meant. But I went to some support groups and didn't, didn't, it didn't work. I started, as soon as I got out, I started drinking again. Same cycle, over and over again. One morning, I came to, and I was hungry for White Castle hamburgers. And I got in my dad's van and was driving down to get some White Castle hamburgers at 3 a.m., thinking I was just tired. And I passed out, driving through on a two-lane road that made a right turn, and I went straight, and I woke up driving through the woods, and I hit a tree, and they found me eight hours later, with I had broken both my legs in like 14 places and my heart my lungs my face was ripped apart I was trapped they had they uh it was freezing though that which might have helped me stay alive probably and uh I couldn't move I was smashed up between the seat and the in the steering wheel at dawn I realized now when the light and I could see that I had hit a tree three feet in front of this farmhouse that kept me from going to the farmhouse and an old lady who lived there was walking out to get her paper and I remember her passing in front of the windshield and I I had a collapsed lung but I just kind of as loud as I could which wasn't very loud I said help and I'll remember this she wouldn't even she didn't even look up at me she was very angry she said I'll get you the help already <laughs> and uh, help came and uh, they got me out with the jaws of life and I spent 40 days in a interaction that lady must have had some alcoholics in her life because to <laughs> Oh, I know. I have to apologize. I was, yeah. To, I mean, the way she reacted is like, it didn't seem like, like that this big of a deal to her. Like, she's seen this before. And it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the first time. Yeah. Wow. So then, then what, not necessarily with this story, but if there's more, certainly more to the story, but I, I want the arc of yeah. your kind of, uh, your emotional and spiritual yeah. ups and downs well and it was um it, i never dealt for a long time with the problems of being alone and feeling like a failure and but the addiction i i i eventually uh oh man i the, the arc isn't that simple for me a lot of people they get in, who are recovered alcoholics and addicts they have a bottom they have spirituality they see the light they get help and they stay sober and it's happily ever after my i didn't have an arc like that i mean my bottom kept hitting and skidding and i would get better for even a few years and then something would happen and i never i never really dealt with a lot of the the issues and the and uh fears and all that shit that uh, but also that was, I think that's as common as the people that it is I, I do I think that's Man, they just don't, as common I don't, I'm glad to hear that because I, I feel like I mean I'm talking about over over like decades of that's trying. what I'm talking about okay. the, the guy that mentors me and my support group the first guy ever to reach his hand out to me he had been struggling to stay sober for 15 years and he had only been sober about a year when he started uh, 
taken me under mm. under his wing. You know, I don't hear too many of those stories. I hear a lot of stories where people have been sober 25, 30 yeah. years, whatever, and they had, they had a horrible bottom. It was great. And then people who've, you're, they're, in, they're still in their first few years trying, relapsing, whatever. I've heard every kind of story mm. and lots of all of them. So, um, yeah, I don't want anybody out there that is having trouble getting sober thinking that that it's it's never going to be for them. No. I know people that it took decades for them. Right. And then all of a sudden, some willingness took a hold in them yeah. where they were willing to, to, to do something that had been advised to them by somebody healthy to try that they had, you know, by a fellow addict or alcoholic that they had never tried before. And they jumped in with the desperation of a drowning person grabbing well, that a life Well, that describes what eventually happened to me. Yeah. Um, in the In the... Meantime, I went through, um, I was homeless on the streets of L.A., living on a mattress I found in the trash dump. Talk, up, talk about was, th- that, because I've always been, and, and I hope this uh, doesn't come across as sensationalistic or voyeuristic, but I've always um, had a fascination with with uh, addiction when it takes you to homelessness and skid yeah. row and stuff like that. And yet that's not enough. No, no, And yet there's also a certain freedom to it that I find very tantalizing. (laughs) You know, I know it would never feel that way, but it always looks to me like, God, I'd kind of like to do that. It's not as bad as you think, as long as you can make it through each day. (laughs) I mean, it it happens so gradual that really getting the drug is is your key priority, that as long as you can do that, you're okay. Um, Your overhead's low. I like overhead's camping. Low. I like the city. Um, he, th- there have been some jobs I've had in reality TV where I say that, you know, I was homeless, man. It wasn't this bad, right? So um, it's it's depressing. You <laughs> you meet a different crowd of people, You're you know. Um, there is a freedom to it, but no, I wouldn't recommend it. No, I don't want to glorify it. Yeah. it. It was ugly. It was dirty. Talk about the, the the ugly and the and the dirty. Uh, you know, first I was and, first I was living out of my van, and then one day, but I would crash on couches of friends who would still let me. And then I remember one morning going back out to my van, and all my clothes were stolen. And then my van broke down. I couldn't drive the van. I couldn't even shut off the engine. I remember I abandoned it with the engine running in LA because you would turn the key, and it wouldn't shoot, boom, 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 wouldn't shut off. And I didn't know what to do. Um, I want to just pause here for a a second and give some some love to our sponsor. Uh, God bless him. PillPack is a pharmacy that delivers uh, convenient pre-sorted meds, vitamins, uh, whatever you need directly to your door. And... um, they sent me a package of stuff. It uh, It's really cool. It's in a compact little thing. It's sorted by um, the day and even by the time that, that you might need them if you have to take them throughout the day. And uh, it just, it's super convenient. It's really well thought out. Um, there are, there's so many aspects to it that, uh, that I really like. Um, the fact that they don't make it a hassle transferring your prescriptions from your current pharmacy to their pharmacy uh, because I, I don't know about you guys but when I'm depressed and I'm having trouble getting out of bed the last thing I want to you know hassle with is being passed from phone to phone and uh, they make it super super easy they contact your old pharmacy and uh, I've been getting my meds mailed to me for a couple of years and I don't miss having to wait in line at the pharmacy at all I don't miss wondering whether or not uh, you know my 
prescription is going to be partially filled and I'll have to come back the next day. You don't have to deal with any of that stuff with PillPack. They got great customer service. They ship meds, uh, prescriptions to 33 states and non-prescriptions to all 50. Super easy to enroll. Uh, I highly recommend it. And just by going and checking out their website, um, you'll be supporting this show. So go to PillPack.com slash happy hour and um, you get the first month free uh, when you sign up. And a month is probably uh, the amount of time you've wasted in your life standing in line at a pharmacy. So um, put that in your pipe and smoke it. And uh, go to pillpack.com slash happy hour. And then I lived, someone let me live in a storeroom. I didn't really, I, I didn't live on a park bench. I lived like in storerooms. And, and what, uh, was it drinking and cocaine at this point? Or just I lived drinking? at Sunset Gar Studios for a couple yeah. months secretly because I still had a key. Yeah. I still had a key. To the office, yeah. Mm. Um, it was. You're kind of a numb thing. You don't want to live. You don't want to die. You're just existing. It's very. There's no hope. Is it fair to say that you want something to come along to make the decisions for you to change your life? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know when that would happen. I didn't have any plans for something to come along. Sometimes I'd get a residual check and I move into a hotel for a week. But really, I would just get high for a week I didn't want to have to deal with really how you do everything you can to not think about how your life sucks it's it's overwhelming the thought of making a decision to get yourself out of it it feels like you are in the bottom of a 200 foot well and any decision is up at the top of that well and everybody's like well, you just need to decide to do this and you're like you don't understand yes you don't understand it's you have no energy you have no belief you have no hope and the only thing that you can decide to do is when and where you're going to get high yeah. or go to sleep. Yeah. Some people would say, well-meaning, well, at least you've hit bottom. And I knew no. I haven't. I ain't going to say that, but no. This, uh, some, somewhere deep inside me, I knew that I could go much lower, really. Um, I ended up in another locked psych ward, several rehabs for a month, and... And I would get well. I would one time I had you know very successful. In between, it was very odd. You would see me. I was doing candid camera. I was. I, I bought a house. I was almost getting married. Life looked good at times. Would you be sober during yes, this period? Yes, absolutely. Okay, and was I it had just gone, white knuckling it or support no? Well, no, I was going to support groups and. Okay, but it wouldn't it wouldn't hold. Wouldn't hold. Were you not doing no. what was recommended in the support groups? No, to keep I, I would say I was. I, I every time I got sober, I did everything. Cried. It's it, doing the the work that I needed to do and took it as seriously. I could go on and on the list of things that I that are uh, how important it was to me and how valuable it was. There were some things that I get that. Uh, um, people would leave me. Um, I had to deal with. I still deal with chronic pain from. I had another accident, motorcycle accident, where I ended up in traction. <laughs> another, I rebroke my leg, and I was in traction again for forty days in a different hospital. Um, there are things that I just it just wouldn't hold, and I would think why. And that that would just make me feel like a bigger failure. Why do, are my friends, who, I got sober with still sober mm -hmm. and i thought i did everything they did M maybe i didn't do it as well but you know everyone has their own story and it takes what it takes do you do you um, believe in god um no that was probably my biggest 
uh, obstacle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I consider myself, if anything, a deist. Um, and it's funny because while sober, this this uh, in 2006, I got sober in 2002. So I'm like 11 and a half years sober now. But in 2006, I was given the opportunity to go to a, live in a monastery as a monk for 40 days, which I did. And I thought this I'm gonna this is gonna be <laughs> I'm gonna I'm come, gonna find God I'm gonna here. find God, I'm gonna come back to Catholicism and all that stuff. And really it more clarified that no, that's not how my life's gonna go. I, I believe in a different type of spirituality of of goodness and the big mystery, because the monks even taught me that, that it's a big mystery. And they're doing it just because they love to be a monk. And they love the Gregorian chants. And, and I'm with you. Yeah. You know, one of my friends said something one day that made sense to me. He said, if God was um, small enough for me to understand, it wouldn't be big enough to solve my problems. Yeah. And I was like, you know, that's that's enough for me. I know it's not me. Yeah, I, yeah, I, it's not. And I believe that, in energy. It's a big, big mystery. It I is. know I'm better being sober. Yeah, and I know um, there's something in goodness and love. Yeah. Uh, but go ahead. I, I um, um, Well... I guess that uh, where you were, the ark finally came, hopefully. The ark, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's kind of a symbol, <laughs> the way I just said that, yeah. it sounded funny. Um, so, yeah, the ark I got on, um, I was, um, I had relapsed, I was living in a cabin in Altadena. And this would have been what year? 2001, 2002. Okay. Um, uh, my dad had died, and uh, I hadn't picked up anything off of the floor. The cabin was about the size of this little office here. It was very small. I had a cat and a dog. I hadn't picked anything off the floor in over a year. It was a compost heap. Everything was melting into each other. It was disgusting. Everything I did... My whole purpose was just to get enough to numb myself every day. And I started shaking. My body couldn't hold the liquor or the drugs anymore. And it was very f- physical pain. Someone dropped me off. I got someone to drop. I said, I need help. And uh, they dropped me off the USC emergency room downtown. But there was such a line. I, I Somehow I had cash. I must have, I don't know how I had cash on me. I got a bandit cab and I got stopped the liquor store and went back home. Next day, same thing. I got I got to have help. Somebody else came to drop me off at USC emergency room, and this time, I I just gave up. And I how I I gave up. I laid on the floor of the emergency room. That's what I was just picturing. I was like, I was trying to picture myself in your shoes, and I was like, I wouldn't be able to stand up. I would just lay down and get in the fetal position and hope that somebody would just come rescue me. That's pretty much it. I was told that the, the reason, the way they will make sure they will take you is if you say you're going to commit suicide. And so I said, I want to die. And I laid on the floor. You weren't they, lying, they though, put were me you? on No. I didn't have any specific plans, like hanging myself, but I didn't want to live. I, I was going to give it one more shot or whatever. And, and you knew you were I, a terrible hangman. Oh, man, I was in, I was in really bad shape. Um, they put me on a gurney, and I was vomiting for like 18 hours. Oh, my God. In this... <laughs> the USC emergency room was a pretty good bottom. Did they give you something to not have the DTs or the, uh, the hallucinations? I think, I think a day later, eventually, when they put me into a ward, they did. 
How much were you drinking and using a day? A lot of Coke depends how much. It was hard. It was amazing, actually, the resources I was able to come up with to get enough. And I was smoking Coke. I wasn't snorting it. That that's what brought me down was, I think. So with a cracker, freebasing. Uh, I was cooking it, so I don't know if that's actually. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was just someone taught me how to cook it. A French chef. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of butter. <laughs> someone taught me how to cook it, so I don't know if that's freebasing. Really, I yeah. never cared to. Yeah. Learn the difference. Who doesn't matter? You know, but it once you do you. Uh, I, all I know is that once I started smoking cocaine, I lost interest in snorting it, and drinking didn't matter as much either, unless I couldn't get the coke. Was the drinking to just come down from Absolutely, the, yeah. Huh. yeah. Um, because I didn't have interest in it as long as I could smoke. Uh, a, a lot of people I know that were, especially towards the end of their uh, cocaine use or their crack use, um, would engage in like compulsive porn or masturbating yes was that a part of yes, your thing absolutely too? okay yes Har- horrible guilt yeah while doing it i'm sure well i wouldn't say while doing it <laughs> after doing <laughs> immediately after yeah that seems to be really associated yes. a lot of the guys i know that were the you know did that even though they lived in the area they would get a hotel room and a bunch of crack and then they'd bring the hookers in and it would just go on for days yeah. for days until they're like their dicks would I be didn't raw. I didn't have the hookers mm-hmm. I was alone that was part of my thing yeah. is just being alone I was afraid to be around people yeah. or the I pornography disa- I disappeared yeah. I went off the grid I had a couple friends who were worried about me but I, I avoided being around people mm. a lot of people maybe they knew I was in bad shape or didn't want to know but I didn't do, I didn't I avoided trying to, you know, being around people. Yeah. I hated life. I hated myself, and didn't think there was a, a way out. Okay, so let's fast forward to your one day yeah. in that in that psych ward. They've given you something to feel a little bit better. Well, th- this was the thing that I I was so blind to is that people there were people who were friends of mine and who cared about me that I was in denial about. Um, there was an old uh, b- boss who had heard that I was in the USC emergency room, and he said, where is he going to go from here? And a friend organized, they organized that they, another, another friend came to pick me up and took me to this treatment center for one month, paid for it, says, don't worry, you can work it off later, whatever. Put me into this treatment center, which people started visiting me, and they cared about me, and it was like, I did not expect this for some reason. I had such a low... Um, view of myself that I, I was really surprised, and uh, so I was I was in the Tarzana Treatment Center f- for a month, and then people started asking other people came out of the woodwork who I didn't even know were sober. Said what you know they would visit me, and said where are you going to go from here? And I said I don't know. I was homeless. I had lost my place, and and they said, uh, uh, well, there's this place called Habad that will take you. We talked to them and they will take you. I said, I don't have any money or insurance. They said, they'll take you for free. Don't worry. And it's for six months. Now, um, I had relapsed in St. Louis after a treatment facility. And they said, you need to go in for six months. And I said, are you crazy? I was like in my mid-20s. 
I'm not going to give up six months of my life to get sober, which is like an insane thought. Why? You get the whole life, right? And uh, But at this point, they said, you got to commit to six months. And I said, absolutely, whatever you want. So the willingness changed. <laughs> oh, man. Whatever. I would, yeah, whatever you want. And they said, what, and then I, like, what is Chabad, by the way? And they go, it's just a Hasidic Jewish organization, <laughs> which was really like exotic to me. I didn't even know what a bagel was, so I moved to L.A. So I said, fine, whatever. And, they, and I moved into Chabad for six months, and uh, it, I, I did whatever they wanted. I was so happy to do whatever they wanted, and I was so happy to be there. I remember like my first week sitting in my, you share a room you know, with a roommate and I had clean sheets and I was just thinking, oh my, this is the greatest thing in the world. I have clean sheets. I have a dinner being cooked for me. I have people to hang out with. Um, I have a swimming pool, the ocean. If I want to go to the ocean, I have a, my own books at the library. I was like starting to appreciate all these f wonderful free things in life in LA that I never appreciated. And, uh, I started to make friends and my fear of people went down. I mean, I don't know. I guess because I was, I started to look at all these guys in this place as like superheroes. Like, I just knew appreciation of human beings. Like, this one guy was a great, he could draw cartoons. He would do this. I'm like, wow, that, what a talent that this guy brings to the world. And these other people were good at, at music. And these other people were very knowledgeable about history, whatever. And I started to appreciate all these talents at these, that these guys and, and me are wasting in our addiction and in, in our lives. And, and um, uh, so I, I lived there for six months, and then I moved into sober living. Be before you get there, can you talk about that freedom that you felt? You, you said something a, a minute or so ago that you said how good it felt to do what they suggested for you to do, your willingness oh. to do things felt good as opposed to when you were in your addiction. Well, yeah, I couldn't, it, none of my, <laughs> I was going to say none of my plans worked out. I never had plans. I was just trying, I was existing. And really, I think one of, the, one of the biggest motivators was, I guess, that at the very gut animalistic level of survival, that somehow I knew uh, this is just going to help me survive. I will survive. If you did what they yeah. suggested. But talk about, if if this is the case with you, because it was for me, the freedom in having people suggest a new way of living sure. for, for you. Because for me, I never expected that that would feel like freedom because it would allow me to turn my brain off and to say, okay, yeah. here's the decision I'm going to make for this right now because they've suggested that I do yeah. this. Um, and it allowed my brain to, to stop spinning at a yeah. thousand miles an hour. Yeah, I guess there wasn't a conscious thought process like that, but it certainly was a lot an easy, of an easier life for me. Whatever, I, I got a mentor who was like this really tough Israeli guy who ran the, the program there at Habat, mm -hmm. and I, I actually l seeked out the toughest people I could mm -hmm. to tell me what to do. When I say, you got to find someone to do, and I would pick out the meanest, what I thought was the meanest, toughest yeah. guy. And uh, it it was, yeah, it was, it was great. I, I remember, besides uh, note, while I was in Chabad, someone brought me my mail. Uh, and 
I guess it was the last pile of mail from my residence. And in there was a newsletter from the high school, the Jesuit high school I went to in St. Louis. And every, they put this out for alumni a couple times a year. And every class, people write in, classes, you know, whatever, is now working with Mother Teresa. So-and-so is now a senator. And, you know, it's like when you get to a point where you can show off, you write in your update, sure. right? Yeah. And somebody, I was reading these things. I said, oh, yeah, well, f- I just fired off a letter like Tom is relapsed again. <laughs> and he's in treatment <laughs> with no hope. <laughs> and I mailed it. And I totally forgot. And, like, the next time it, it came, they printed it. Like, I didn't think they would print it. I was just going to send them, you know, like a sarcastic oh, note. And they God. printed it. Tom Kramer reports that he's relapsed again, and he has no hope, and yada, yada. His dad died, and life is hard, whatever I wrote, right? <laughs> they printed it. But the odd thing, and I was, like, embarrassed at first. I was horrified. <laughs> I'm better now. I don't, you know. Uh, and then I started getting calls from my high school alumni who had read it. People had gone, I don't know how they found me, and said, I read your thing. I felt the same way. Like, my life sucked, and I didn't want to tell anybody. And it was like this eye-opening experience that I'm not alone. Tom, that thing that you just described, that is God to me. That... I can't wrap my head around a dude in the sky with a beard pulling levers, but whatever made that happen, that is... That is... It was amazing. It was. Um, I shared a lot of uh, stories with people, yeah, who I didn't really know, who went to the same high school I did, who were ashamed to talk about how their life had turned out. And that's one of the the biggest lessons that I've learned in life and also being a head of body and going to therapy which is a big part of my recovery um one-on-one therapy where i was able to trust another human being and group therapy where i realized i wasn't alone and to, to realize that you're i'm not alone it's i have this this it's this theory that i call the broken arm theory that if you have a broken arm it hurts and if you're at school, you're a kid at school, or you're at work, and you have a broken arm, then you have the secondary thing about you're feeling sorry for yourself, having a broken arm that hurts. But if everyone around you had a broken arm, it wouldn't hurt so bad. No. It wouldn't be so bad. Someone taught me that. There was a book, and I can't remember the name of the book, but she, it was an important lesson about there's this secondary thing that we judge ourselves for feeling bad or for having a problem. And that, that can be worse than the original problem. So I, I have a hard time uh, being okay. I mean, uh, being okay with myself. And I'm too tough on myself. And I ruminate and all that. Uh, and not all the time. I'm much better, obviously. But it, I'm tough on myself. And But when I look at somebody else and I hear somebody else's story in a group or whatever. And I hear the struggles that they go through, whether it be depression, whatever issue they have, addiction, whatever. And I see what they're dealing with. I have, I have like incredible respect for them. I'm so proud of them for dealing with what they have dealt with in their life. Now, there's a lot of people I know who are friends, whatever, that maybe they have problems they don't tell me, but I don't feel this necessarily the same way unless they would share it with me. Do you feel like love has a way of, 
like once you release it or other people release it, I just have this belief that love has a way of finding almost like a like a heat seeking missile that it finds where it needs to go. But if we don't open ourselves up to letting people love us, those it never is is allowed to home in. But it seems like that moment that you allowed yourself to be loved, that you let your defenses down in that first week in Chabad, yeah. that suddenly the letter from the yeah. high school classmates, the love from the people that were trying to suggest new ways of living to you. Yeah, they're, they're friends that I ha- I are the most incredible people who I've learned more about from this process. That first year sober was one of the best years of my life. I was going to the beach every day. I had hanging out with friends. I started dating again. Um, I ended up getting engaged while I was there in sober living. Uh, How did you deal with when your fear and anxiety would come up? What were the tools that you used to deal with them? Or did they not come up as much as it used to when you were getting loaded? I was... uh, uh, the first year, I did, it barely came up. I was actually, after what I figured I had been through, I had nothing to lose, you know, and everything to live for. So, uh, so your attitude was oh, was totally like, different. I was enjoying life. Okay, yeah, you know, it crept up later. Like now, as I get older in life, some fears come back: fear of people and how do you deal with jobs. It? I, I, well, one of my, well, I go to, I still go to support groups, um, every week and one of the, and I, and I write, I have to still journal once in a while, but one of the, the, the simplest things that someone told me, which I do is on me at all times is a grateful list that I keep adding to, and I will look at this list and as I adding, I, the older I am and longer I've been sober, it's amazing what can happen in someone's life. Um, it, at the very beginning, it was just like, I can still walk. I have, I can eat today. It's like the basics. And as, as it goes on, there's friends you add to it, places you've been, opportunities, and um, they're it's unbelievable gifts. And I get down, I still, you know, get depressed sometimes, whatever, and I look at my grateful list and I scroll through it and I go, God, I am so lucky. I mean, you clearly are somebody that, that is allowing love to pass in and out of you these these days, whereas before it's, it seems like it was really oh, hard. Oh, yeah. No, no, shut, shut off. Yeah. Yeah, and it's still uh, something I got to remind myself. That yeah. that really is, if I could just do everything with love, more love. Yeah. You know, because it's hard. It's like I can't say, I'm not religious type to say I'm, you know, I'm doing it for whatever divine reason. Um, but love is um, pretty good. I wish I could word it better. <laughs> I'm not. By the way, um, just listening to some of your podcasts, and when you read emails or whatever, when people, and they describe their feelings in like a sentence. Struggle in a sentence survey. Yeah. Yes. It's some of the most incredible uh, 
po- poets. It's profound. It's, it's, it's some it's, of the best ones are teenage girls. It's so deep and yeah. and visual, and you can feel it. I know yeah. I can re- I can relate. Like even if I don't haven't experienced that exactly, I have a gist. The the picture they paint is unbelievable. Yeah. It it. Yeah. Thank you for saying that because sometimes. I don't get feedback on those. I usually oh, get man. feedback on the shame and secrets, and I feel like the struggle in the sentence sometimes is almost like in an an hour interview boiled down to a sentence. And when somebody's able to nail it and describe it in a way that paints a picture, yeah. I just feel connected to the universe. Yeah, it's that. That's what hit me the hardest in a great way. Yeah, of how profound your listeners are. They're amazing. Yeah. They're fucking amazing. I'm not just saying that to both. No, it is. To blow smoke up their depressed asses. But, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, and, that, and uh, once again, I don't feel as alone. Me too. What a great note to end on. Tom, thank you so uh, much. Thank you, Paul. This is on my gratitude list now. It fucking better be. <laughs> it is. You can check back. <laughs> many, many thanks to... Uh, to Tom and uh, and to Russ for uh, connecting the two of us. And, you know, something else I wanted to mention um, as I was uh, putting that episode together is I wanted to stress, you know, when we talked about people being windbags and boring you, uh, people talking, uh, opening up about their feelings to me does not fit into that category. I'm talking about people that, you know, go on and on about their sports team or, you know, whatever, stuff that uh, that isn't, quote unquote, important. I hope that makes sense. I so want to stop and re-record that and find a better way to say it, but I'm going to I'm going to keep going. And that's perfectionist angst moment number two in episode uh, 171. Um, before I get to uh, some surveys, want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. Uh, if you go to the website mentalpod.com, you can make a one-time PayPal donation, which helps greatly, and uh, you can also become a monthly donor, which is huge. Hugely, hugely important to keeping this podcast going and allowing me to um, have this be my full-time gig. And uh, yeah, you can do it for as little as five bucks a month. And uh, I really appreciate it. It means the world to me. You can also uh, shop at Amazon through our search portal. That way Amazon will give us a couple of nickels. Oh, I liked how quickly I said that. It give, give, gives, a couple, gives a couple of nickels. Um, Want to go back? That's perfectionist angst moment number three. We're racking them up. You can, um, and that search box, uh, the Amazon search portal is on the homepage right-hand side, about halfway down. You can buy t-shirts at our uh, website, um, or at least the link to go buy them. Oh, God, Paul, shut up. Shut up. You can buy coffee mugs. For some reason, the t-shirt bothered me, but the coffee mug didn't. I have to bring that up with my therapist on Monday. You can uh, also support the show non-financially by going to iTunes and writing something nice and giving us a good rating. Um, that really helps um, boost our ranking and it brings more people to the show. So that's another really important thing. And um, you can spread the word through social media. All of those help. So let's get to the... Uh, this first one is an email I got from a listener who calls herself So Tired. And she writes uh, about having PTSD symptoms without any clear memories. She writes, being post-traumatic without traumatic memory means to me to accept that I am quite disassociative, react in the weirdest, most disturbing ways to touch and weirdly to emotional intimacy 
ridiculously hypervigilant, plagued by nightmares, and can lose my shit just because I have to stand near a man with a certain body type, hear heavy breathing, or see big hands. I can and often do suddenly disconnect during invasive medical procedures. The list goes on and on to include deeper issues and patterns. But other than feelings, responses, and a couple of floating disconnected images which very vaguely suggest something bad, I have no clue why the hell I am this way. My therapists, past and present, mostly seem to think that I will never know. It's crazy-making, like walking around with a bullet wound and not knowing what caused it or who shot you. Everyone's a suspect. Everything, especially your childhood, is tainted. I can tell that people who get to know me always assume I was molested or raped. Some of them actually hint at it, and it fills me with self-disgust, like I'm a manipulator and a liar, a sympathy thief of the worst kind. I find myself in the impossible position of feeling like I'm creating a false impression that I need to fix, but also being unable to say, listen, nothing happened to me. You're getting the wrong idea, because I don't know that that is true. So I feel horribly guilty, like, look at this drama queen who has gotten so good at convincing herself that something happened to her that she is now misleading everyone else. It's a cycle of self-hate all its own. I never know what will make me disassociate. How can you know your triggers when you don't know what created them or even what experience they were related to? It's exhausting. Uh... She then goes on to say, Paul, you say a lot of people who have experienced trauma or abandonment, especially if it was sexual, tend to be either very promiscuous or very shut down, sometimes alternating back and forth, and intimacy terrifies us. It describes me so well. I am completely shut down and have always been, which is a source of great shame for me as an adult woman. And intimacy? Well, what a mess. I am almost completely isolated because I am so overwhelmed by closeness. But close... Um, emotionally and uh, but at the same time I'm constantly starved for it my whole system short circuits when people get close emotionally and physically wires get crossed all over the place I crave safety and being hugged and I freak out if anyone as much as lays a hand on my shoulder my system can't catalog what touch and closeness are for misinterpreting them and either going into sensory overload or switching all the lights off leaving me disassociated and disconnected and sometimes childlike for no apparent reason which apparently is another telltale sign it's scary it's a scary confusing thing i do have a therapist who specializes in trauma which is why i'm slowly allowing myself to trust her consistent belief that i am definitely post-traumatic but i'm going to lose her soon um because it's a public health system and she won't be replaced. Still, she's helped me recognize so much in the time we've had. Uh, I've never been to a trauma survivors group. I simply don't meet the official criteria. I was once referred to a great program for women with dissociative disorders. I was cautiously hopeful, but a month in, after the forms and psychological reports had been filed and everyone was very optimistic about my chances, I was told that I actually wasn't eligible because significant disassociation is considered a PTSD symptom, the program was designated for sexual abuse and assault survivors. They apologized profusely, but told me that since I can't remember what, if anything, happened to me and only have the symptoms, they can't include me. That was a breaking point, to put it mildly. 
I try to tell myself that it's no big loss because even if they'd have me, I'd probably feel like an imposter or an attention seeker. On the other hand, I've always had an inexplicable instant connection with survivors and they tend to assume I'm one instinctively. So there's that. I don't know. Utter confusion. Maybe being in such a group is exactly what I need to work this out, but I seem to be too much in the gray area to get in. However, honestly, I might not be looking hard enough just because I feel like I'd be taking the place of someone who actually deserves to be there. And uh, I, he and I, she and I exchanged a couple of emails and, um, you know, I basically said that that's she couldn't be more wrong about taking somebody's place who deserves to be there. I've been going to support groups for 10 years and I have never seen anybody um, that had to wasn't able to come in because there wasn't room. Never. not I, I've never heard of that happening. Um, so I'd say just keep trying. Just keep trying. And I thank you for so descriptively talking about such a difficult, difficult um, thing to live with. And my heart goes out to anybody who is experiencing that, that similar thing because it's just another added layer to the, uh, to the trauma. Sending you a big hug. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Juice, and he writes, In the mid-90s, my grandpa was on life support for having a stroke. He had been in a coma for three months, and the doctors notified the family that a decision should be made. My family decided to pull the plug and let nature take its course. The family gathered in the room where my grandpa was staying, and the doctor yells to my grandpa, saying, Vic, if you do not wake up, we will pull the plug, and you will likely die. In an instant, my grandpa pops up and yells, Well, that's cruel. He was up walking around the next day and went on to live for another five years. To this day, it makes me smile. Even in even near death, he had a sense of humor. That's awesome. Uh, this is Shame and Secret Survey filled out by a guy who calls himself one of them, nar- one of them co-narcissists. Um, he is... Straight in his 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. And I'm just going to hop around and read bits and pieces of this. Um, He's never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally abused. He writes, I remember that every now and then when I was in kindergarten slash first grade, um, she did this two or three times. My mother and I would be playing in a room when she would suddenly pretend to be dead. And I would believe her every time, thinking she had died and would try wildly and desperately to wake her up. She would stay still for several minutes until I started to cry or scream too loud, and then she would magically come back to life and hug me, trying to calm me down, laughing the whole time. This was around the time when I started growing increasingly shy in public and afraid of getting into trouble or messing up at home. Uh, Around when I was 12 to 13, my mother and I started to fight with each other consistently. She was drinking a lot around this time and was trying to quit smoking and was acting out at me frequently and intensely. I once returned from a friend's house to find my door off the hinges and my dresser emptied onto the floor with a note reading, Clean your room, pig. When I started gaming every weekend or so with some new friends, my mother called me a faggot. A brief argument ensued, and when she could say nothing back to whatever remark I had made, told me that she should have aborted me. Um, I have anxiety, depression, and ADD, so when I get into negative tailspins, um, which she's pretty good at triggering, that little trio gets the little man in my head to tear myself down to ribbons. 
People say I'm insanely nice, thoughtful, funny, and supportive, but when I'm by myself, I'm often far more negative and self-destructive. I'm trying to take steps now at 22 to be more self-expressive, assertive, and compassionate towards myself. This shit's gonna be work. Yeah, I would agree, but it's so worth it. Positive experiences with your abuser. Yes, there have been positive experiences. We've shared laughs. She broke down in front of me when her brother died after a long battle with AIDS, and she's proud of my academic achievements. I know she's had a hard life and has in turn become a pretty warped and lonely person, so I feel bad for her, but I'm trying to acknowledge that I'm not responsible for her happiness, that those positive moments aren't on me to create slash initiate, and that despite these moments, there has been a strong undercurrent of control and anger directing our relationship. The positive experiences are nice, and I hope that we have more of them, but it doesn't sway me from my desire to move far away. Thank you so much for for that. That... um, that was just really, really great. Um, and sending you, sending you some love because that was a mind fuck that, uh, and some serious abuse too. But you really sound like you're in a. Um, I'm gonna shuffle more papers in the background. But you sound like you're really in a, uh, really in a good place. And I, uh, I encourage you to keep, uh, keep healing. This is. This one is hard to read because it's pretty dark and intense, um, but it's it's not. I don't think it's triggering to anybody because it's not of a sexual nature. But just my heart broke for this woman when I read this, and I just feel like her voice needs to be heard. And it's not very long. Qualify a, a third way, Paul. Why don't you? This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and it was filled out by a woman in her forties who calls herself Coffee Chris. And about her depression, she writes, The constant plummet of my heart when I relive the day my son died and the years of caring for his disease. I want to sleep like an addiction. Um, About her anxiety, like the floor is falling and falling, like I'll get T-boned at every intersection, like I'm going 100 miles per hour when the speed limit is 35. Um, Compulsive behaviors, checking for texts all the time, feeling anxiety if no one responds. They must be mad at me. And then this snapshot is the one that I just wanted her voice to be heard. She writes, um, after knowing that my son uh, with Hunter's syndrome, uh, who was not supposed to live past the age of 12, um, finding him when he was 17 years old one Sunday morning and not being able to wake him up. While in shock and denial, the sound I made when I had to say goodbye was animalistic from the deepest part of my soul rattling my ribs, telling him I tried. I tried. Mommy tried. Sending you a big hug. And, uh, you know, we've never touched on that subject, um, really, on this podcast of children um, who have, uh, parents who have children who have have died. And um, I can't imagine the web of depression and what whatever else must must grief sadness uh, must go with that and um anybody out there that's listening just sending you some sending you some love this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Wendy Darling. She writes, 
Uh, I adopted a cat who was abandoned by her previous owner at the beginning of this year. Though she was shy at first, we soon bonded and are now inseparable. If I'm at home, she's on my lap or as close to my lap as she can be. We live in a large old house with my five roommates and assorted friends who crash on our various couches. I'm a college student. The doors do not latch properly, so my cat can push open doors at will. This year, I became extremely sick, vomiting and having diarrhea nearly every day for months. One day, I was taking a bath, trying to feel better, when suddenly I knew that I was going to get sick. Naked, I leapt from, leapt from the tub and crouched over the toilet to vomit. My cat, who had been waiting outside the door, heard me get out of the tub and pushed the door open. She stood beside me and began meowing loudly over and over as I retched. The noises drew several roommates who ran down the hall to find me hunched over and bare-assed, the cat butting her head against my side. It was incredibly embarrassing, but hey, at least someone will always love me, my cat. Thank you for that. Uh, this is from the Shame and Secret survey, and I just wanted to read an excerpt from this. This is filled out by a woman named Lilo, who is um, bisexual in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, she she had a dad who was, who was uh, creepy. Um, Never sexually abused by him, but boy, this one is on the, on the, um, whatever the line is there. Um, he says, I know there was sexual abuse in my dad's family, and while he never abused me in that way, he has several times basically said that he's proud he hasn't, which I think is a super weird thing to say. I also felt very uncomfortable being even semi-clothed around my dad as a teenager and tried to avoid seeing him while wrapped in a towel or anything other than fully clothed. Uh, I didn't feel that way about anyone else at that time. Uh, that truly is one um, that I would put in the some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts as abuse because, you know, I can tell you personally, feeling drank in or drunk in by a parent's eyes it, it is fucking creepy and um, affects you. But the, the the real reason I wanted, and she was also physically and emotionally abused by her, her, her parents, um, positive experiences with the abusers. Yes, my parents can both be very sweet and loving, and I have many memories of being held and read to. But as I've gotten older, their kindness is more directly linked to whether I'm willing to acquiesce, which I'm not. So I'm having increasingly few positive experiences with them. And I think that's really profound because um, I think that love from that parent has got to be, well, certainly, you know, there's got to be boundaries when the child grows up to be an adult or even when they're a child. But um, there's got to be that sense that it's that it's unconditional. Um, you know, there can be repercussions and consequences for crossing their boundaries, but there should always be that sense that they still love you no matter who you are. Um, uh, let's see. Darkest thoughts. I hope my dad finally has a heart attack and dies, and I hope something happens to my mom so I can get custody of my sister. I think about my dad dying somewhat frequently, and, and with both parents, I sometimes try to see how I would feel if they died. Uh, <laughs> might have been the weirdest pronunciation of died ever. I want to see how I would feel if they died. I know I'd be sad, but it's hard to even imagine that emotion because I've been so detached from them for so long. Thank you for that. 
this is, and, and thank you guys so much for stepping up and creating some more, filling out some more awfulsome uh, moments. You know how happy those make me. This one, uh, I love this one. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Shoelaces. She's in her 30s and she writes, I was hospitalized last August after swallowing a bunch of pills in an attempt to find relief from the endless emotional agony I was feeling. At the crisis center, they quickly removed anything I was wearing that may present a hazard to someone looking to kill themselves. When they were done, I felt awful, stripped of my dignity. But despite that I looked, but despite that, I looked at my husband and said, they took away my shoelaces in the same tone of voice as you have on the show, which Maria Banford says. And as pathetic as the situation was, we both burst out laughing. God, that is a, that is a definitive awfulsome moment. And for those of you that are new, you know, awfulsome is awesome and awful at the same time. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Aspiring Vegan Bodybuilder. How do I not read his survey? Uh, he's never been sexually abused. He's in his 20s. He's straight. Um, he was emotionally abused. My father was abusive and depressed growing up and was threatening to leave our family. My mother, an immigrant and breadwinner, bore the brunt of this abuse. Because she didn't have a good relationship with him, she became too emotionally invested in her kids and it has ruined us. Myself and my two sisters have suffered from depression and anxiety for decades. I never felt like a child. Uh, I never felt like a child and have always considered myself an adult, responsible for others, but with no self-value or self-worth and no enjoyment of life. We are only now figuring out what has happened. I feel bad for my mother and angry at my father. Any positive experiences with your abusers? Yes, I still have a good relationship with my parents. I haven't told them uh, how their bad relationship has affected me, but it has. I'm 27 years old, and I'm only now having the first romantic relationship of my life, and I am fucking it up. Darkest thoughts? As a man of color, I am ashamed that I am strongly attracted to white, especially blonde women. I don't understand why I don't find women of my own ethnicity to be as attractive. Um, what are your... Well, you know, I wonder if there's something uh, at work with mom. Uh, there with the with the mom stuff um, deepest darkest secrets um, I'm hating myself for saying that by by the way perfectionist angst moment is that four or five we're on quite a streak I hate that I just said that I just feel like such a pompous like I should have said it with a pipe Ugh. dark to, and those of you that want to send me an email and tell me to stop uh, being so hard on myself go fuck yourselves been a little while since we had that. Hmm? Go fuck uh, yourselves. Deepest, darkest secrets. This is going to sound silly, but when I was around 12 years old, I had a huge crush on the prettiest girl at school. I brought her flowers every day, sent her notes, and even gave her $50 for Christmas. But I never talked to her, and I still don't understand what I was doing or why. This is causing me problems in my current relationship. I haven't told anyone about this, and it's still so shameful to me. I still feel like that immature child in my current relationship. And then he uh, he didn't fill out anything more in the in the survey. But uh, yeah, man, that feeling of worthlessness and um, not being worthy of our partner, it's I you know I would really really concentrate on on working on yourself before getting into any any relationship because um 
That's a, that's a pretty wobbly foundation to try to build one on. I feel like I said that with a half pipe, like a tiny, tiny, maybe like a cigarette in a cigarette holder. I stand by that last bit of advice. This is just an excerpt from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Rise and Shine. Uh, she's straight in her 30s. And uh, she's never been sexually abused, but she was emotionally uh, abused. It was an emotionally abusive household. And I want to read her deepest, darkest secrets. Uh, I am a compulsive skin picker. I will spend an hour in front of the mirror squeezing my pores. It becomes difficult to do this when you live with someone, and my boyfriend caught on to what I was doing. However, not to the extent that I did. He thought I just picked and squeezed at the odd pimple until it got red and scabby, which I did as well. But he does not know about the hours spent at the mirror. His attitude is I should just be able to stop. That I don't love him if I harm myself that way. That it makes me look like a meth addict. Why do I want to scar up my pretty face? I honestly don't think he is capable uh, to understand what what it really is. So not only do I have to hide it from him, I really can't talk to him about it. When I'm unable to sleep at night, I will creep out of my bed and go into the bathroom. It dulls my mind and my focus strongly shifts away from my thoughts and it relaxes me. It's almost as if I would rather focus on these tiny, minute details on my face and the physical act of squeezing the skin than deal with what is going on in my my mind. By the way, I think that's exactly what, uh, what it is. I feel an almost instant sense of relief and am comforted by the act. Sometimes I will squeeze and pick at a pimple to the point that I can feel pain in the nerve endings and the feeling is almost euphoric. If I know my boyfriend is going away for the night, I will plan ahead of time to do this and it will give my skin and it will give my skin enough time to heal before he can see the marks. I used to be a cutter in my late teens, but that did not last long because I was always in and out of relationships and did not want my boyfriend at the time to see the marks. I'm pretty certain that if I were alone and not in a relationship, I would go back to cutting. Sometimes I miss it that much. I feel like the skin picking is just an extension of that. Thank you so much for that. That, um, Feel like we really got a peek inside your uh, your soul on that one, and those are my favorite my favorite surveys. Um, and I'm going to suggest uh, seeing if there are support groups for that. There have to be. There's gazillion support groups for every kind of every kind of thing. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Tr, and he's 30. He writes, "I was a musician playing cello, and my only passion." Uh, I'm sorry, I was a musician. Playing cello was my only passion, and I was good. My college professor said I was the best cellist who ever went to that college. Then I had an accident, uh, not a car accident, but I'd rather not get into get it more specific because it's uh, a story I'm sick of telling. I lost one finger, the use of another finger, and have scarring on another that causes constant pain. This was my left hand, so I could no longer play cello or any of the other instruments I had learned. One day, when I was still sensitive about my hand, a little boy walked up to me and asked why my hand was messed up. His mother was right behind him, and she looked horrified. So I looked the young man in the eyes and said my finger fell off because I didn't eat my vegetables. I ended up getting a hug and a thank you whispered into my ear from his mom. It is fucking awfulsome. Thank you. Uh, this is just an excerpt I want to read from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by uh, 
a transgender woman uh, who calls herself Emily Road. Um, actually, a couple of excerpts from it. She is in her 20s, bisexual, raised in a slightly dysfunctional uh, environment. Uh, and uh, ever been emotionally abused? Uh, yes, coming out as transgendered was delayed from age 6 until 29 because of the fear my upbringing induced. I didn't particularly give much of a shit when they abandoned me, but the fact that they pretended like I've never existed fucking blows. I have a niece and nephew who I've never met, and this breaks my heart so completely that all the blissful moments I've ever had are revoked like some cosmic entropy in which my happiness can never exist in any dimension. Sorry to go all theoretical physics on you. Darkest Thoughts I'd never heard of unwanted thought syndrome until your podcast. I immediately understood it. I've always had a problem not holding onto these thoughts, uh, of not holding onto these thoughts and embellish them like the taking of a single melody and turning it into a beautiful opera. The thoughts exist in a limitless realm. Pedophilia, necrophilia, coprophagia, cannibalism, going into the houses of families I went to church with and murdering their children in the slowest possible way while they watch, figuring out the mechanics of how to melt a person over a period of days without causing death, the goal of which is for them to live deformed. It's easy to make the connection from these thoughts to hatred of my biological body and my surrounding culture, but these things are reprehensible, and the only way to feel better about them is to turn them into complete stories." darkest secrets, the thoughts I had in the last answer. No one knows that I am and have been sexually aroused by the concept of death. Moreover, fear. I used to create elaborate situations in which to make a person utterly vulnerable, then proceed to verbally degrade them until they considered themselves a thing and were happy with that. This was not a scenario or exhibition of power. It was unadulterated sadism for the sheer purpose of my spank bank. I am ashamed. Um, uh, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to ideally I'd like to tell everyone I've ever met my true secrets so I could see who my true friends and family have been what if anything do you wish for to transition to female and to do it smoothly have you shared these things with others only partially not even my therapists know the full story but the soft coo of a sarcastic comedian coaxes these things out of me somehow. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved, satiated, and to be honest, a little horny. Uh, by the way, I get that sometimes when I share um, intimate details or talk about um, things that were actually um, painful. Um, and I'm finding other people also experience that. It's it's almost like a combination of horniness and PTSD at the same time. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Yes. We should get together, go bowling, or some other innocuous bullshit like that, and discuss frankly and openly our horrendous thoughts and sexual proclivities. Thank you so much for that. And uh, sending, you, sending you a hug. Um, this is... This is um, filled out by a guy who calls Shame and Secrets, filled out by a guy who calls himself B-Face. And uh, he is gay. He's in his 30s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. His dad uh, is an alcoholic. 
was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I once lived in a Buddhist community and had a relationship with an ex Oh, Herbert doesn't like to talk about Buddhism. I apologize, Herbert. Can I proceed? I once lived in a Buddhist community and had a relationship with an ex-prisoner for fraud. Um, I thought it was edgy dating a bad guy. He became very manipulative and stalkerish and used to hold me down until I'd come against my will. Um, emotional abuse. My dad physically and, and mentally abused me all my life. I uh, have ADD but haven't been diagnosed. He used to call me thick all the time and tried to strangle me once when I was asleep. I suffered with sleep paralysis for years after that. Any positive experiences with your abusers? I've forgiven my dad but limit my time around him. Uh, he well and truly fucked my head up. Darkest thoughts. I have intrusive thoughts that people think I'm a pedophile or having sex with kids, or sometimes slapping loved ones. It can get very disabling if I'm unwell. I avoid places kids are, and I've not been able to be an uncle to my nephew as the OCD is so intense. Darkest secrets. Me and my brother fooled around with each other when we were kids. Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I fantasize about group sex and sex in public toilets. I feel okay about it. What would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell a teacher how bad she made me feel at school. She used to call me baby all the time. Uh, school and my dad have completely destroyed my self-esteem. What, if anything, do you wish for? To not smoke and not self-medicate with alcohol. To marry my partner of six years, get a dog, and a stable job. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I've told my partner he's not ready yet, but he loves me dearly and vice versa. He's an amazing guy. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good. I love the show. When I'm depressed or down, hearing you makes it better. Wow, that's I love hearing that. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Keep talking about mental health. I never knew what intrusive thoughts were until I listened. Um, thank you so much for that B-face. This is... Um, this is just a moment that I want to read. Um, this was from a listener who had filled out a survey, a hospitalization survey, um, and she calls herself TVC15, which is the name of a David Bowie uh, song. And she was the one, for those of you that listen regularly, she had described her stay in a hospital where she had kind of broken from reality and thought that this per other person who was hospitalized was David Bowie. And um, anyway, uh, she just shared this with me because we started uh, exchanging emails. During my hospitalization this past December, the patient I met named David, who I suspected was Bowie in disguise, told me that smoking is the easiest way to get outside. So I told the nurses I smoked and somehow ended up buying a pack from a long-term patient named Donald who was selling them on the sly. I don't know why I thought I had to smoke to keep up the illusion, and looking back, I didn't even need that excuse. They would have let me out eventually. Four times a day... Oh, hold on for one second... Music just uh, accidentally kicked in. Um, they would have let me out eventually. Four times a day for 30 minutes, the smokers went outside. There were two parking garages next to the hospital. I wasn't supposed to leave the grounds, although I often did. But almost always, I would take the elevator to the top level or one of the other parking garages, light up a cigarette, and look down. I still thought I was dead or in some afterlife test. I kept thinking that jumping off the parking garage might be the end of the test. 
So I'd go up there three or four times a day and look down and always decide not to jump. It was never somber. Uh, I was always thinking, what a way to run the test. Uh, It couldn't be that easy. I'm not that stupid. Then I'd dance all the way down to the bottom level, playing Bowie on my phone, of course, giving the finger to every security camera I could find and singing loudly, no matter who was around. It's odd, but I remember these moments very, very fondly. They seem very rich, standing in the cold and snow, hearing the music, feeling completely unhinged and untethered and confused, and then dancing through it. It's a weird but not unpleasant memory. I'll have for a while, I think. Thank you for that, TBC15. I love it when you guys paint. If I were to make a gra- uh, gratitude list right now, like Tom had, had talked about, you, you guys, when you paint little movies for us to read and hear, that, that is like the top 10 of things I think I'm grateful for. Uh, because it just, um, I don't know, it just connects me, just connects me to the universe. This last thing I want to read is um, a happy moment filled out by a woman named Shannon. She writes, during my first week of college, basically my first week ever away from home, save a few small class trips, my dad called me to talk about how things were going. My dad is a great guy, honest, funny, and terribly clever, but never forthcoming with his emotions. We talked for a while, and as we were saying goodbye, he said, I love you. Automatically, I responded, I love you too, and we hung up. I immediately burst into tears. To the alarm of my roommate, uh, I realized at that moment that that was the first time my dad had been the one to say, I love you first, instead of me saying it and him responding. It was so special to me. I know it sounds terrible, but to me, it was beautiful. Just beautiful. I don't think it sounds terrible at all. I think it's beautiful. That's why I read it. That's why I closed the... Close the fucking show with it. Like how like how I'm attacking her. <laughs> Let's end on that moment. Let's end on that odd moment of me ruining a uh, a beautiful, beautiful, happy moment. No, I know I'm not ruining it. Um I just I love the sublime nature of beautiful, happy, um, or even awful. You know, some of the awful some moments you guys submit are so sublimely um awesome. And, uh, all right, I'm starting to run my mouth now. I want to thank you guys um, for being a part of this this community and my life. And um, I hope if you're out there and you're stuck that, that this is, these last two hours have given you a little, little boost, a little something to get you through your day and remind you that you're not alone and that there is hope if you're willing to ask for help. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. 
Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.